and welcome back to They Made Another One, where each week we study an often forgotten installment in a franchise and see how it holds up on its own. I'm one of your hosts, Corey. And I'm your other host, Liam. And this week we're talking about um, a Lord of the Rings movie that nobody seems to talk about anymore. But I mean, Elijah Wood's in here. And, you know, I don't know why it seems to slip through the cracks. Liam, do you have any thoughts on why maybe people don't talk about this one that much? Um, I think it's just one of those cases of it being too far separated from the last installment in the franchise. You know, right. They tried it after this one didn't work or maybe a little before this one didn't work. I, I'm a bit confused on the timeline. They also came out with that Hobbit movie that no one remembers either. And it suffered from the same fight. So they tried it twice in like the same year and it just didn't work out. So oh. it was too far removed. You know what? Maybe they, you know what? Maybe it was maybe uh, maybe it was like we can do gritty or we can do like kids movie lighthearted and they didn't know which one was going to work with audiences. So instead of just like doing a test screening, they just put them both yeah, out they did them both, and they yeah. wanted to see which one was going to take off. And I mean, only one of these movies has two sequels. So we got the answer, but at the same time, does anybody really talk about those Hobbit movies? No, not at all. I feel like if anything, they all just canceled each other out. I didn't know that there was that many of them. Oh yeah, there's it's a, that, that book's like six pages long, and they did three entire Peter Jackson length films. Holy moly! And, yeah, I mean, <laughs> wow. Yeah, so you didn't get to the part at the end of one of those Hobbit movies where two dwarves fight on like a frozen lake. Uh, no, I'm surprised that didn't happen sooner though. Uh, Elijah Wood's not in that one, so I get that maybe you might have checked out by that point because, like, I mean. We're all here for Frodo, and I think we all know that. And, yeah. you know, um, I think that something that might have turned people off from this one is that he's undergoing a bit of an identity crisis. So it's not Frodo, it's Frank in this one. And um, he's replaced his sword with um, with a knife. And it's a little bit grislier than I think we all remember. And they took Lord of the Rings out of the title. So it's like, yeah, Lord of the Rings, you got the Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings, and then you've got Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, and then you've got Lord of the Rings, the Two Towers, and that probably wasn't the order those came out in, but bear with me here. And then they were like, okay, so we've got Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, brought to you by J.R.R. Tolkien. And then we've got this one where they're like, we're not going to use the Tolkien source material anymore. We're going to branch out. And that's Maniac, which is based on the William Lustig film Maniac, and then they put Hobbits in it, which I think was a bold choice. And um, it's directed by Frank Calhoun, who also did Prey and Amityville Awakening, written by Alexander Aja, who did Crawl recently in The Hills Have Eyes, High Tension and Horns, and Gregory Lavasser, who also did High Tension in The Hills Have Eyes, um, edited by just a guy named Baxter. Everybody yes, knows, I saw everybody knows tell Baxter. Us, tell us who did the music, Corey. Oh, you know, Rob. <laughs> Rob did the music for this one. And uh, I saw that he also did the music for Gretel and Hansel, which is a movie I want to see. Yes, uh, yeah, I'd love to see that. Too. And uh, does that qualify for this podcast? Um, I ooh ooh does, loosely. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's we really both more want of a reimagining. It, so I think it does qualify, dude. If this podcast just becomes movies we both want to see, we've totally lost the plot. Yeah, movies we want to see that we can like write a. Uh, a three-page essay arguing <laughs> how it fits in, and by the end, the professor is like, I mean, I guess that kind of has a thesis. I'll give it like a C+. And the professor's all our listeners. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> cinematography by Maxime Alexandre, who also did Crawl, Annabelle Creation, Shazam, 
and the hills have eyes so more than anything this is a hills have eyes reunion film and um like we said it's got elijah wood as frodo baggins aka frank zito nora arnzader as anna d'antoni jan broberg as rita leanne balaban as judy america olivio or olivo as angela zito joshua de la garza as martin nunez and then a few other people here and there and yeah so this is a a bold new step for the lord of the rings franchise um because it's got a lot more blood than gore in it that's for sure is this joke dead yet are we beating a dead horse i think we could probably get a few more a few more minutes minutes okay yeah um so you guys remember Gollum, right so he's not in this one but there is uh there's an equally pale and bug-eyed creature in this movie. Ooh, that that's a way better. Frodo. That's a way better bit. Frodo's doing his best Gollum impression, <laughs> yeah. and uh, he's trolling the streets of the movie Drive in the Under the Skin van. So it's really just a cinematic amalgam here. Yes, <laughs> and, yeah, and uh, he's trying to invite women on dates where he shows them his mannequin collection, and by them I mean their scalps and not the rest of them. Yes, and yeah. that, let's not forget he's seeing the world through the perspective of Billy from Black Christmas. That's true. Which is to say his his two eyes, His own two big saucer eyes. Yes. Um. Anyway, so and you might have noticed that this movie does, in fact, not have anything to do with The Lord of the Rings other than Elijah Wood is here. And this is a great example of what I like to call adult Elijah Wood, which is to say Elijah Wood is an adult in this movie. And um, it's mm, a lot more in line know. with uh, what his tastes have grown to become because he's a weird horror schlock exploitation kind of guy, which yes, I think is yeah. cool as fuck. Dude, I, so let's talk about that for a little bit because Daniel Radcliffe has done a similar thing where after he got franchise movie, he's just gone off and done weird stuff. Sort of coincidentally, he also did a movie with uh, the writer of this film, Alexander Aja. He did Horns, mm-hmm. and uh, which is just another super weird in these franchises. Do you think that these into adults realize that like hey if i weren't doing this franchise right now i would love to just be doing some weird weird shit but i gotta finish this Uh, franchise yeah i don't know if it was like if i wasn't doing this franchise or if it was the realization that they were now very rich and it was like Mm. oh i can just go do whatever the fuck i want now (laughs) and it doesn't matter anymore and i can just go after stuff that i think is interesting but it's just, it's so cool that whatever I want for these guys is ends weird. up being like yeah. weird movies because it could also be like uh, Rupert Grint who played Ron Weasley and just like, I can do whatever I want. I'll buy an ice cream truck and yeah. not be in that many movies for Fuck a while. It. So it's it, it's so cool that that in the case of Elijah and Daniel Radcliffe, we get, we get some really cool movies out of it. Yeah, no, totally. And I mean, Elijah Wood now over at Spectre Vision produces some movies that I think are really fucking great. Namely, oh, yeah. I'd love to give a shout out to my one true love which is mandy they're just doing fucking whatever they want over there and they give the creators that they bring in a ton of free reign and it really shows and it's really cool um i don't think elijah wood necessarily needs publicity from us but something we've been talking about lately is you recommended me the shutter podcast visitations um Mm. which is elijah wood and daniel noah and they like just go to wherever these creators are and they just have a chat and it's a really sort of rolling chat where they sort of talk about 
anything from whether or not people believe in God and ghosts to like familial trauma that drew them to the horror genre uh, and everything in between. Like that time Richard Stanley volunteered at a traumatized chimpanzee sanctuary. Yes. Oh, dude, Richard Stanley podcast. <laughs> that episode's so best. good. Um, so whenever you're done listening to They Made Another One, you should go listen to Visitations. Um, yeah, and, and not a sponsor. That one day, hope that one day they make another one because there's not enough episodes of that show. No, yeah, there's like 11 and two of them are Guillermo del Toro. And I'm not saying that like it's a bad thing, but it means realistically there's 10. Like, Yeah. Not a sponsor, but if they want to pay us money, I'll take it. This is their chance to get on the ground floor if they made another one with their shutter money. Dude, I'm down. I love you, Elijah Wood. He's He's one of those guys that... Um, once I realized what he was doing after Lord of the Rings, because I was I was never a fan of Lord of the Rings, but I was a, a fan of his look. I was a fan of his first adult movie, which he was a child in, which is The Phrasing. Good Son, starring Macaulay Culkin. Phrasing is so um, important in that thing you just said. Yeah. His first what movie? His first adult film. You can't say that. Which he was a kid. Stop. The, the Good Son, starring Macaulay Culkin. Um, and so I've been, Elijah Wood is just like a dude that he's kind of drawn to, um, especially after like seeing interviews with him, he's talking about music. And, uh, I think the first thing I saw him in outside of Lord of the Rings was a TV show called Wilfred, which is about this dude who starts seeing his neighbor's dog as a man in a dog he can talk to but no one else sees him that way they just see him I just as a regular make sure, dog because discord ruined it you said dog costume yeah okay and this was on yeah. like network television it was it was on fx or fxx were they just giving money to whatever <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's like a four season show and it's really really amazing it goes to some really deep dark places and so after i started following that show i was in on elijah wood um he did a movie in 2013 called Open Windows that is sort of a, a precursor to the unfriended searching subgenre that okay. takes place all on a screen. And that one's really... My favorite Elijah Wood thing to name drop um, is the uh, it's the movie The Ice Storm, which is directed by Ang Lee. I've never heard of it. Um, I got this because I am a patron of Bright Wall Dark Room, which is a online film magazine that does a lot of great long form sort of meditation and criticism that everybody should go read apparently this is the episode where we just plug things that we like and um they give me monthly film recommendations and one of them was the ice storm because it checks a lot of the uh sort of weird sort of changing political attitudes and generational growth it's a bit like the movie the big chill which um is like this group of friends comes back together after being sort of like rambunctious and revolutionary in the 60s and it's the 80s now one of them died and they're just sort of like taking stock of like where they're at in their lives at this point and there's one person in that group who's like a little bit younger than everybody else and that movie's really good um the that ice sounds storm, amazing i'm putting that on my list right now it has a criterion release so you should be able to track it down no problem um in terms of the ice storm i don't actually know how much i liked the movie having only seen it once i think i'd have to go back to it but to give you a sense of the big chill um, the Big Chill stars Tom Berenger, Glenn Close, Jeff Goldblum, William Hurt, Kevin Klein, Mary Kay Plays, Meg Tilly, and Joe Beth Williams, which is wild. Yeah, that's big. And it's uh, it's Lawrence Kasdan, who is fucking amazing. Um, if you want to see this, I can just lend you this. Like, I own it. It's in my hands. <laughs> like, Yeah, of course. Of um, course. So, 
this movie doesn't have anything to do with Elijah Wood, but a movie that does have something to do with Elijah Wood is Maniac, the movie we're talking about. Um, and so I want to ask a bit about if you have any familiarity with the original Maniac, but first I want to say that I was really excited to watch this movie because I had heard about it as a remake when it came out and I had never seen the original, but I knew it was remaking one of these cult classic horror icon movies, blah, blah, blah. That thing you hear about every like six minutes because they're just making a new one all the time. But it exists to me in the same place that Fright Night does. The remake of Fright yes. Night. Yes. Um, oh my gosh. Boy. Even though, and this is important, I have not seen the Fright Night remake yet, and I'm assuming we're going to get to it here. So stay tuned. Um, but there's something about their sensibilities and the way they felt to me and how they were presented to me it, as horror remakes that make them feel similar. And I feel like, you know, Elijah Wood and Anton Yelchin kind of, they've got a similar vibe, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally. So um, this is something I sort of a long time coming for me, uh, but I don't know shit all about the first movie. I did a little bit of reading before now, but I was wondering if you had anything on the first one or if this is kind of uncharted territory. Not much more than you, man. Um, because I serve movies a lot, I've, I've probably heard about it in passing a bit more and like I'm familiar with the poster. Um, I knew that there was the wicked kill scene in it that I had heard referenced in quite a few different podcasts, but it's not one that I ever checked out myself. Um, and so this movie, Maniac from uh, 2013, is is actually uh, 2012, released in America in 2013. Whatever, I'm a purist, it, and it was made by a <laughs> bunch of people that are not American. Um, this movie, when it came out, uh. I, I kind of thought about it the same way as you, Corey, Fright Night. I remember going to see Fright Night in theaters despite not having seen the original because I was excited that we were getting something that I knew was a classic that I had heard about and we were now getting it for people and it was being targeted at me. And so I went to go yeah. see it. Um, Fright Night didn't stick with me a whole lot. I would love, love, love to revisit it. But Maniac was a similar thing. It came out. I, I kind of knew it was based on a, an older movie. Um, but out that older movie. And I just watched this one instead. So I saw it right around 2013 when it came out. And I absolutely loved this movie the first time. Um, so much so that I've seen it many times since. I've shown it to friends. Um, I've watched it by myself again. And I just was so, so into it that I was excited when it came up on this podcast. I was excited, excited to watch it how do again. We get the... in, how do we get in this situation so often where I'm never 100% sure if you've seen it before? And then it ends up being a movie where you're like, yeah, I've seen it 38 times and I showed it to my grandma <laughs> twice. Like, how does this keep happening? Well, once it's clear we're going to do it on the podcast, um, even if we're threatening to do it on the podcast, <laughs> I just keep every I keep everything to myself. Yeah, I but look forward to there has to be remakes of classic horror movies that you haven't seen. There has to be some and we have not found them yet. <laughs> And so, uh, so my so my update for this one is uh, I was I was excited to watch this because it was my first time in probably uh, honestly probably five or six years because I've seen the movie oh, so three you, or four you saw times it a lot but, when it came out and then kind yes, of took a break. Well, yeah, because it was streaming on Netflix back then, and so it was so readily accessible. I don't know exactly when it dropped off of Netflix, but um, I, I haven't seen it in about five years. And so I was excited to check it out again, especially now that 
I'm way more familiar with modern horror. I'm more familiar with uh, 80s slashers. Now I'm even more familiar with Maniac. Um, because when it when this one came out, uh, I really knew nothing, nothing about it. Um, and now I know that it's actually a very uh, revered movie. Um, and I was excited to check this out again because now it's it's not as much a modern movie. It's like seven, eight years old, right? Same right. sort of thing with American Reunion where it's like, oh, I can kind of look back at this movie, think about how I used to feel about it and how I feel about it now and, you and lis- what it means to hey, me. Listeners, you listen to this podcast because we're the only ones daring enough to directly compare Maniac and American Reunion. This is, yes. what, this is the content <laughs> you signed up for. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and so all this is to say that I now have seen the original Maniac Ooh. because I, I decided to double feature the two of them. I felt it would Ooh. be a good time because I've been meaning to check off that original Maniac for years and years and years, not even because I love this one, but just because it's an 80s slasher. I've gotten really into those um, deep cuts over the last few years. And so I, I really wanted to check it out. And it was streaming on both Shudder and Amazon Prime. And so I did watch the original last night, right before this one. Do you want me to tell you a bit about that? Yeah, please. What'd you think about that one? I really dug it, um, mm. but in a different way than I dug this one. It was clear from the very beginning when you see the actor who's playing Frank in that original movie that it's gonna be a different kind of movie. Um, and it really is. It's a lot sweatier, a lot sleazier. Um, a did, lot of you that. Did, you did say sweatier, specifically sweatier. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this, um, the sweat quotas are off the charts. Yeah. If you look up the actor who plays Frank and then type maniac after it and hit Google Images, you'll get so many photos of his sweaty face. It's really, really unsettling. Well, I'm doing that right now. Yeah, do it. And so this takes oh. place. Oh. <laughs> this, take, this takes oh. place in like. And in like 1980s, 1970s New York. So that's already going to give it a very different charm. Whereas this movie takes place in Los Angeles. And so they they have very different vibes. So I appreciated that from the very beginning. Um, the, The violence is absolutely brutal, which is what I had really heard about it beforehand. Corey, there is a scene in the original Maniac that... If you never get around to seeing the full movie, you you at least have to bring yourself to watch this on YouTube. Tom Savini, your yeah. best friend, Tom I, Savini. I saw that Tom Savini was here in one of these stills, and I was like, well, sign me up. I like Tom Savini. Yeah, so he did the effects. Your best and- friend, Tom Savini. <laughs> <laughs> we need to do a podcast called My Best Friend, Tom, Tom Savini. Savini. And we just watched movies that he stars in. Hey, would, and then we once if we stretch it to stuff that he like wrote or uh oh, or that um, means there would be a podcast excuse for me to talk about night riders yeah I fucking love night riders yeah so yeah if on our future tom savini cast we'll talk about the original maniac as well because there he's in the movie he not only does the effects but he's in the movie and there is a scene that he is integral to both on screen and in the effects <laughs> department <laughs> And, dude, it is maybe, like, top 10 most brutal kills I've ever seen in a horror movie. And it is so realistic. Like, I saw it, and I exactly what that would look like if that yeah. happened. It is. That's what it is. Tom Savini's good at his fucking job, man. Yeah, it's it's terrifying and huge. And so, um, <laughs> terrifying that's gonna... and huge. 
dude and that's gonna stick i love the way you're talking about these movies i feel like we've hit a like we've struck a nerve where you can only come up with the funniest possible adjectives to talk about maniac (laughs) but like once you see it you'll know it's accurate too (laughs) um and so it's a movie that it did really stick with me um maybe my admiration for elijah wood is influencing me a bit here but i i've i'm still a bit more attached to the remake of maniac and, and we'll discuss that more as we go on um this movie is just because it feels like my 1980 maniac you know like the kids who would have seen the original maniac scrolling through tv on cable and watched it a bunch of times i feel like i have that with the new one like it very much feels uh, a slasher movie yeah and um, it's cool that that experience can be replicated in the streaming era at all but there really is something to be said for the equivalence between flipping through channels and finding a movie and like closing your eyes spinning in a circle and picking that movie on netflix basically like it can be a very similar experience yeah yeah and i was reminded of that more than anything watch i was really reminded of my history with the remake and i was thinking about that too how special it is to have that in the in the modern day when there's so many decades of great movies already out there and there's really no um there's no time limit on movies as to like when they're gonna grow old and expire and so a lot of the movies from my childhood are movies that came out 10 20 years before i was born that stuck with a whole lot of other kids and so it does feel very special to me that i have this horror movie that wouldn't have been that for a lot of other generations because the movie didn't even exist yet and so i really liked both of them but i do like the remake uh more yeah yeah and i mean so that that there we go cats out of the bag on that so we know that you really like the remake but i'll just give a quick sense of uh like where I was at going into this, because this movie, I think, has a really, has a lot of bold stylistic choices that I didn't realize were only from this movie. Um, Namely stuff like the POV, I just sort of assumed came from the original movie. Yeah, so you Um, knew that that was uh, a concept going in, hey? uh, No, but when I sat down to watch it, I I Ah. assumed that they were like, oh, they probably just pulled this from the original movie and i'm realizing they didn't do that um so that's something that sort of made me think a bit about how i felt here um there's also this movie feels like it wears 2012 cinema on its sleeve a little bit um like and i mean this in the nicest way possible but i couldn't shake that any driving through los angeles at night with synth music is just gonna feel like drive for the rest of my life like that's all it's ever going to feel like is, oh, cool, this is just drive. Um, and I know that's, like, reductive, and I don't mean it literally, but it evokes that. I talked a bit earlier, too, about how um, I was also getting a bit of Under the Skin. I know Under the Skin came out later. <laughs> so, again, not a perfect analogy. Or I guess technically in the U.S. they would have come out, I think, in the same year. I think Under the Skin came out in 2013. Anyway. Yeah, that sounds yeah. But yeah, you're not you're not saying that like they ripped each no, like that was they the feel time period. Like, yeah, it, it feels like it's cool that you can find these stylistic hallmarks and locate a movie that came out after honestly like the twenty tens started because it feels like a lot of complaints that you get, especially from like big theatrical cinemas, that it's all very homogenous. So that there are like identifiable traits of 
a period, even in three drastically different movies. I think that's cool. Um, but yeah, I didn't know a ton about it going in. Like I said, I'm sure I had maybe seen a trailer. Maybe I know like with fright night, I definitely had, but it just sort of, I knew that they came out at similar moments and they evoked similar things. Maniac is just a movie I always wanted to get to because I just thought it might be cool. I didn't have a huge reason to think that. I didn't have an awareness of like the creative team behind it here because obviously um, Alexander Aja has gone on to do more stuff. Um, Maxime Alexander has gone on to do more stuff. Elijah Wood is Elijah Wood. So um, I wasn't really 100% sure what I was getting into, uh, but I was excited to get there. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you were too because I think this was your suggestion right? yeah like it a, was my suggestion I and, and i, I pushed it, it from you yeah yeah it, it was my suggestion and um we were tossing between a couple different options and i was like maniac 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 like i want to do maniac so this feels like another one where i'm like ticking a box um and that's yeah, and exciting that, that kind of feels like a testament to um this movie's presence that you you thought of this movie and associate it with that time in your life when fright night came out and are still thinking about it now without we're not really talking about that it's a remake of an of an original movie anymore it's just we've barely really talked about the movie sort of itself at all yet like we're yeah. just talking about the, like what it evokes when you look at it and especially like that poster too <laughs> like that poster's got a lot of presence to me even though it's like very simple um so, yeah, it was fun to get to it, finally, which is a very long way of me introing how I feel about this movie. So here's the big reveal. Drum roll, please. Did you hear that? Did that pick up at all? Yep, I got it. All right, great. I, I fucking love this movie. Oh, I'm so glad. Um, And I loved it because it surprised me often. Yes. And yeah. that's yeah. huge. I think... It really takes some swings, and most of it works. Um, I'm prepared. This is a movie where I feel like uh, I'm prepared to talk about some downsides, even though those downsides don't detract from my enjoyment of it at all. Something that I just really, really liked. And it starts with the opening sequence is uh, is a lot, huh? Mm-hmm. Um... So for anybody who hasn't seen it, I'm going to say the punchline first, which is that someone gets a knife through their mouth. Yeah, up through the mouth. like Yeah, so like... Into the mouth. Yeah, like you're like through the bottom of your mouth, and then it's bad. Um, so it's immediately got this really strong, voyeuristic, kind of sleazy, but it's not sleazy because it's all very clean. Like, it's got like glitz to it like this la sheen is on it even though you're getting like side streets in that um and so we've got elijah wood in a van and you've got these girls leaving a like a club or a bar and uh he picks basically picks one out i guess is the way to phrase it which sounds terrible but i mean that's what's happening follows her home sneaks into the building cuts the power sneaks up behind her asks her not to scream and then stops her from screaming by shoving a knife through her mouth. And then, uh, she does get scalped, right? I want to make sure that that happens in the intro. Yeah. Yeah. She sure yeah. does. Yeah. And, um, and then, and then title, card, and then title cards. And that takes six minutes, 
seven minutes and you're just sort of waiting um and it's all it's all pov so it really sets a tone because you've got the way the city feels you've got the pov you've got an immediate awareness that the movie will sometimes break away from the pov but not permanently you've got the music and you've got the violence all in the opening yeah which is perfect it it's it's the movie boiled down into like a five minute short except that short is the opening of the movie yeah yeah it's 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 perfect it kind of reminds me of the opening of uh scream you know where it's like a little short film right at the beginning that just gives you an idea of what you're it does such a good job setting the tone for what you're about to see and it doesn't feel jarring at all that it stays in that pov because i wasn't sure if it was going to um so then when the movie ultimately does that you're just like okay this we're here um and I think obviously something we'll get into is it makes the moments where you do just see Elijah Wood feel a lot more like revealing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. There's just you could unpack the whole movie in the opening pretty much. Um, generally, we've so we've got Frank, who is Elijah Wood, who owns and of <laughs> owns a warehouse that is a family-owned business where he restores mannequins like antique mannequins and um he lives in the back room where he's got we learn uh creepy mannequin girlfriends with uh the scalps of murdered women stapled to their head um and this all is sort of a process where he's working through this trauma from his mother who seems to have been like a prostitute or some sort of sex worker. And he, as a kid was like seeing her have sex with like all these men. And she was like, it was, it's not, she doesn't want him there, but she doesn't try very hard to make him leave. So it's unclear like what that angle is. Like if it's like a forced thing or what, but anyway, so he's got a lot of resentment about that. Um, and just towards his mother in general. And he seems to be taking it out on all women, which is not great. And, um, it's weird because, so he's not, it's, this isn't really, um, this isn't like a Friday the 13th, I don't like it when the teens have sex kind of slasher thing, because it, it becomes clear that he's picking out people that remind him of his mother, not, it's not like a sexual promiscuity issue, so that's an interesting element in that it's not, um, didactic i think that's the word i want it's not trying to teach you a lesson it's just a guy who's got some pretty significant mental issues and traumas to work through he seems to have schizophrenia as well just working through it in the worst possible way totally yeah i don't think this movie would have worked if it were um a typical slasher movie where the the people who are being offed are just fodder or the people who are being offed are the focus because the POV here is used so that we're with Frank, the killer, the entire time. And so his reason for going after these people has to be more than uh, just like a boogeyman who strikes because uh, 
for because that's what he does you know that thing works when you're focused on the victims in your movie and the victims overcoming the bad guy and the killer is just lurking in the shadows but when we're spending our entire with the bad guy here we have a he's the protagonist uh, yeah he's the protagonist you know it's there needs to be something more in order for it to just not be um for it not to be just like a, a retelling of a slasher movie with a different format slapped on top of it. I think that would feel a lot goofier and cheesier. And so I think the fact that the original Maniac is is also focused on your bad guy, you're following the killer around in sort of a uh, like a precursor to Henry portrait of a serial killer sort of way. Um, it, it totally makes sense that in this version they're saying, okay, we're going to go one step further and we're going to be in the POV the entire time of Frank. We're going to do something that is is often used in horror movies sparingly in order to get us closer to the killer briefly. We're going to do that for the entire movie and we're also going to have a lot of the movie focus on maybe why it is that he is doing that. And so we get those flashback sequences as well. And so I think it's it's really important that the his his methods and and why he's doing what he's doing are a big focus of the movie. Well, and I think that's why it's important that we still find the violence really shocking is because it wants you to empathize to an extent, but it does not want you as a viewer to condone it. It mm-hmm. wants you to understand it because I mean, you know, you can be as empathetic as you want, but when you get to the point where he is locking a woman in a parking lot, hiding under a vehicle, slashing her ankle and scalping her on the ground, you can't be on that dude's team. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. And, and, uh, I think the POV just does a a great job of that because I got to say that in the original, I had a tougher time getting behind our protagonist and maybe Elijah Wood has something to do with that. You know, you saw the picture of the sweaty man from, uh, the original maniac (laughs) where it's just, you know, he's, he's, he, he looks like a bit more of a creep and, uh, he's charming in certain scenes, but casting Elijah Wood here does seem like a smart move because we we see him as frodo and we see yeah. him as well, a, in a conscious a choice right? yeah because yeah, he's also not physically imposing um like he looks like a guy you could beat in an arm wrestling match <laughs> like mm-hmm. um he's he's fucking he's fucking elijah wood like he's just a, a pleasant sweet looking guy whose knuckles are really fucked up here and has big bags under his eyes but like you know nothing that you couldn't overlook if you just saw him like walking down the street You'd be like, hey, that looks like a guy that looks like Elijah Wood. Um, yeah. He wears turtlenecks. Like, how threatening could he be? Um, but the movie... I think the movie takes a little bit of time to get there. I think the second kill sequence feels a little bit jarring for me because we know less about the situation, so it feels a lot more sudden and less... Um, relevant to what he's working through like trauma wise um which is the one with the lucy right i think that's her name the one who's like into him and wants to try to like hook up and Mm -hmm. they have that fucking sex mirror on the roof of their room so that's one of the first sequences where you get a look at our protagonist also the fact that um on the dating site all the kid pictures are real pictures of elijah wood was fucking wild (laughs) They were just yeah, using I a know. bunch of actual pictures of Elijah Wood. 
I I always think about that whenever you see photos of someone as a kid in a movie, you know, where it's clear they had to just go to their parents or something. Hey, and be like, yo, do you guys have childhood photos of your kid? Do, I need them. Do you guys mind if five minutes apart we see a picture of childhood Elijah Wood and then he's scalping a woman? Do you guys have any big qualms <laughs> about that? Um, but yeah, so like we see them go on a date and we get this first inclination that he's almost got, it's like a borderline Jekyll and Hyde thing where it's like this impulse that he can't really control and he has medication for that seems to manifest in some sort of like migraine or like inability to focus and great pain. Um, but he's able to keep it together. Like he seems like an awkward guy for sure. in a lot of the interactions he's having with these women, but he doesn't seem like completely off his shit until the very end but the thing that got me with that second death that sort of didn't sell me right away on it was that the the transition seemed sudden between like uh maybe they're hooking up and he just like doesn't want to that bad or he's just uncomfortable to like oh no he's strangling her just fully and that's obviously very visceral because it's pov and like the actress is doing a great job looking like someone that's getting fucking strangled so that's very unpleasant but um I found that that one didn't work as well just because it felt less connected. Whereas I think the more you learn and the more clear it becomes as to why he's doing it and why he's picking out who he's picking out. Um, Cause largely it's people that seem to be reminding him of his mom. Um, at a certain point that starts to seem less true because with Anna, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of that for sure. And then it's a bit of him just wanting it. I think. I think it's kind of a double-edged sword, but uh, in any case, um, I found that as it went along, it got easier to sort of understand it, but that first one was a bit of a stepping stone to that. Yeah, um, you know, having seen the movie so many times now, it's it's harder for me to put myself in that headspace where I don't know a lot about this guy going in, but... Um... I, I wasn't thinking about what he was doing as direct as he's looking for people that remind him of his mom, thinking that this is just a dude who, like, wants uh, affection like anyone else, and he's trying to date around, like, 20-something-year-olds do. And then as he gets close to these people, he starts in the way he's been traumatized. Um, and so it's, I guess... Uh, he might be picking people who remind him of his mom unconsciously, but but I, I figured that this whole dating scene was just him trying to connect with someone, and uh, as it gets close to that point of, you know, um, intimate connection, he, he can't control the way he's been damaged, and so he lashes I, out. I like that. I, I didn't get it that way just because it, it immediately follows the intro that we got, which sets up very sort of specifically this kind of like homicidal tendency and very specific like thing that he does with the scalps so it felt less like looking for genuine affection and more like looking for the next like the next one that he can do that um like that dating online was like a reliable way of getting in contact with people that mm. was less focused on hoping that you pick someone out on the street and that it goes well because it seems that his end goal is pretty routinely getting like a mannequin set up uh with that person's sort of look um 
there's definitely a bit of a lack of clarity, which I think is the point in terms of like what purpose they're serving ultimately in his in his working this out. Um, so that's I think up for debate, but I, I definitely read it a bit differently, um, based largely on the intro, mm, and yeah. I think it's painted in by later scenes with how committed he is to being able to enact that violence, like chasing people and locking them in places and how visceral it is and how specific it is. Like one woman gets scalped alive. Like, um, yeah. So it's hard to not take that that as well. And think that it was never fully about, um, connection rather than it's about like retribution for this shit that he had to go through when he was a kid. And yeah, like I think he needs that, to get at back that point at that. Where, where he scalps the person alive, um, the yeah. older woman, he's he's totally let himself go. But and and uh, he also says specifically to that woman, like it's about that 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 person at that point he's viewing specifically as his mother, and that is yes. like a revenge action because he's yeah, saying yeah. that to her. Um, yeah, that one is very different yeah. than the others. But the the first one with Lucy um, gave me a I think is is unique when compared to all the other ones. It is where for he, sure girl in the parking lot because i think after he he strangles her he's he's talking to himself and he says why did you make me do this mm-hmm. you know what we didn't want to do this again and so i don't think his plan was to hurt this woman all along i mean i think he was certainly scared of doing that which is why he uh was so hesitant to go up with her and um so awkward but i think it just it ended up overcoming yeah. him i think he that did tracks. this and then he, uh, you know, as the movie goes on, he's he's more able to latch back into that because we're watching his uh, his downward spiral here. Yeah, and I think with Anna too, that becomes a bit more pronounced because with Anna, it definitely is like a search for affection um, that gets thwarted ultimately by a shitty boyfriend, as it often is in these movies. Um, that he sort of sets off after that realization is kind of made because um, she is an artist photographer who wants to like make use of his mannequins and they sort of have like this burgeoning relationship friendship whatever um as they sort of talk about art in their lives and things that um relate both to this art show and not and they sort of get close and then he is brought to the realization that she does in fact have a boyfriend and i think um part of that realization plays really well with how that that boyfriend is treated later and we'll get to it later because it's closer to the end but um i'm curious to see if we're going to be on the same page with that so i want to set that up for later in the conversation but sure and then in the meantime we spend a lot of time i suppose obviously like just with this frank character and these sort of frantic conversations with himself like these sides of himself and these surrogate women that he's like built out of these mannequins in his like gross ass back room of this place where he sprays raid in their faces. Cause there's fucking bugs everywhere and it's terrible. Um, and I like that cause that sort of really outrageous sleaze is sort of juxtaposed with a very sort of clean, shiny sort of like city life when he goes outside and like a colorful Los Angeles nightlife, which like you're saying contrasts so much to like late seventies, New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I want to start, I just want to get to this part now, and the music fucking rules. Yes, Corey, I'm with you. I mean, we finally agree. That 
that I I often let the music pass me by. But this time, man, I was really thinking about it, and uh, I love, love, love the music here. Yeah, those opening shots of just, like, the skyline on really sharp angles and just the music's playing and the credits are going. Mmm. Oh, it's good. Big fucking fan. And um, it's weird. I saw some reviews and things like that that said like it's john carpentery i feel like this is a very narrow-minded way of looking at it because it's a horror movie with synth music in it and that's all people are making the john carpenter comparison for um like i said it definitely evoked drive for me a lot um with like the the feeling of uh, la and the way the city looks and the way the music sounds um but i think part of it too is it's just got this very it just fits the tone perfectly. I don't know if it would feel right had it not been synth- synthesizers. Like if it was like a an orchestra or something. I just don't think it plays the same yeah, way. No. Yeah, I'm I'm totally with you. I I can't imagine the music for this movie being any different. It it fits the uh, the city lights against the the black night so well, and um, there's a lot of like montages of just kind of prowling through the city, and but but he's in a car, and so his movement is very smooth and as he just gazes around at the streets whereas um someone who's on their feet and sort of sneaking around various alleys and stuff then and they're closer to the ground i could see the music being a bit differently but yeah this is this is very glossy and smooth and so i feel like the music uh replicates that but it's it also is deeply haunting the music Mm -hmm. there's an undercurrent to it that is just so so freaky yeah, and I think that's a great way of putting it, um, especially in those sequences like you're talking about. That That's where like, the under-the-skin comparison comes for me, not just because it's like a person driving around in a van, but because until someone emerges and becomes part of the movie again, it's not clear if they're just shooting like random people or not. Um, because yes. under-the-skin's whole thing was, uh, if I remember this correctly, it's that they just did put Scarlett Johansson in a van, and those people didn't know it was a movie until they told them later. Yeah, that's um, absolutely right. And it's there's shades of that because you genuinely don't know if they're just like shooting people through the van and then maybe like tried to get in touch later to like get like clearance for it or like what I don't yeah. know what they have to do legally speaking, but um, it's got that feeling to it, and I think it adds to the the voyeuristic angle that also comes with the POV. Um, I think obviously that goes together i think pov works so well for that too because like you said it's something that you don't usually see for the full length of a movie um you'll get sequences of it like black christmas style or you'll get single scenes of it like in when it started to emerge in the 40s even like you'd get it for a single scene in a movie to really punctuate something but because so much of it is that here you really feel like you're viewing the world not just from a character's frame of reference because it's convenient, but because um, you're seeing the world as he sees it specifically. And I think that plays into how some of the things play out. I'm just going to get to it even though it's not in order. The thing that made me think that the most was, so they're at this the art show at the end, Um and he is in the bathroom at the same time as Anna's boyfriend is in the bathroom and they have like a brief sort of confrontation, I guess. And he's just a huge prick and like dries his hands on his jacket and like, I don't know, calls him gay and like tells him to fuck off basically. And 
while we hear from Anna that her boyfriend's definitely a dick, um, or like uncaring, I got the impression from that scene in particular that maybe the actual interaction they had was not that specifically like he's being bullied like it's high school and we're seeing how he's viewing the man that's in the way of this idealized thing he's trying to set up wow i never thought of that i i absolutely love that because um how obnoxious because it's comical the boyfriend is yeah it's it's just it was ridiculous to me not not enough for me to be taken uh to 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 lash out at the movie because it's already earned so much goodwill with me but it's just it is so so outlandish and kind of just feels cheesy that okay we've got this killer that we're sort of uh sympathizing with occasionally but we also know he's bad and now we're gonna put him up against someone who's just like an really outward dick in order to sympathize with the killer even more it just didn't really track for me and so i think that's that's absolutely likely i love that Um, interpretation i also want to say that i think i sort of that seed got planted because the first time he has like an episode on that date with lucy when he looks around every single person in the restaurant is looking at him and i think realistically no not every single person in the restaurant is staring you dead in the eyes so i think it's more meant to evoke how he's feeling than it's what's literally happening Totally. Oh, I'm blown away that I hadn't put that together because, of course, <laughs> when when he's in the restaurant with Lucy and he's he's starting to have um he says he's having a migraine, but it might be a sort of panic attack, and he looks to the side. Everyone in the restaurant is staring at him. The music that is playing drops out, not yeah. immediately, but it sort of fades out beat by beat, which is so creepy and effective. And then blood starts dripping down from Lucy's face mm-hmm. as she's talking to him, and so of course. I knew at that point that everything we're seeing from his point of view isn't going to be diegetic. We have sort of an unreliable narrator here, but I just didn't think to apply that to other sequences of the movie that were a bit more subtle. Because some of them are obvious because it's like a mannequin turns into a person and like, well, that's not a person. But that was my immediate read on the, the boyfriend thing. And I think that was to help us understand that like where he was at with how he was interpreting his relationship with Anna and the frustration that he was feeling combined with the belittling that he got from like a mother figure previously is the help, like be the thing that pushes him over is how he's reading that encounter. Cause realistically he wouldn't even, the boyfriend wouldn't even know, like he might know who Frank is cause she has pictures of him and stuff, but like he has no reason to do any of that. <laughs> like, Totally. Yeah, totally. And so it, it tracks that he's he's going to see this boyfriend as the dudes who he watched have sex with his mom that just oh, like, yeah. gave him, uh, a smirk and didn't care about him at all and would probably bully him if they could. You know, it, it totally makes sense. Yeah, because when we get those flashbacks where we sort of start in a POV and then like his mom appears and then we the camera will spin and we'll see that it's like childhood him. Uh, I feel like it's definitely, yeah, because the, the men in those are so singularly focused and so, like, primal um, in, like, the sex act that I feel like it's a similar, like, weird masculine fucking testosterone freakout that's happening with the boyfriend. And um, he's literally timid man on the dating site. Like, he's a very meek, kind yes. of reserved, awkward 
So to juxtapose those things seems obvious, of course, but I think that if you're gonna shoot your movie entirely in POV, you may as well fucking lean into it. And I like that they at least thought beyond the stylistic flair of it to make it feel like it was relevant to how the story was being told. Yes, yeah, I I really love that. I love your interpretation of that scene. And um, I think what what's really stuck with me uh, about this movie throughout the years is that when I think about it, I don't think of it as like, a cool horror movie that used a pov gimmick and so that's why it's memorable i often don't even think about the pov when i think about this movie and that's not because uh it's not used well it's because i think it's used so well that it just doesn't doesn't immediately register the same thing i say about music movies that have really good music i often don't even think about it because it just blends in so well and so the pov use here i think is is so strong because the rest of the movie is well thought out and um and it seems like the pov is there to work in tandem with the rest of the elements and it's not just it's not they didn't just see the original and they thought oh hey let's make uh uh, it'd be cool to make a slasher movie with pov it's like they saw the original and they saw the way that it has a killer who's a protagonist and they thought about the ways pov is used in the horror genre over all these decades that you've been talking about and they thought about what that means and so they took this pov thing and they applied it to an older movie and then they really fleshed out the character and they thought about what that pov means and i just i think it's absolutely brilliant i'm surprised a movie didn't do it before this a pov horror movie that has um that you're in the head of the killer the entire time it's really surprising especially in the era of the found footage movie where we're doing type stuff anyway you know it's just it's so incredible, and so I love that this movie uses POV not just as a uh, as a, a cool way to film your movie, but a cool way to communicate uh, what the character is feeling. And I think that bathroom scene is is just a great example. I love that it's not highlighted that this might not actually be happening by him. Maybe like. In, in a, I think in a lesser horror movie, he would lash out at the boyfriend and he would kill the boyfriend in the bathroom and then you would cut back to the boyfriend standing in front of him. Totally yeah, and I'm so glad it's happen. not that. Because because he's not the kind of character that would lash out at a man. He The way the boyfriend is treating him makes him have more aggression toward the female character. And so it doesn't make sense that he would go after the dude. It makes sense that... He retaliates against the mother figure, which is the woman yeah. who had just been like bullying him, who was like asking if he was gay for some reason, and just sort of yeah. like belittling him. And I think that those things in tandem have set him off to such an extent that like that's where we get that she's like hogtied and then he starts to try to re remake that sort of like brushing her hair thing but then it just spins violent obviously he starts like cutting up her back and just like scalps her alive which is terrible just fucking the oh, worst no. it's so gross and, yeah, and you can you can tell the effect it's digital which definitely is a bit of a bummer but the acting really fucking sells it. totally yeah that is that's maybe my favorite uh scene in the movie in terms of performance i think those actors are just going so hard and they know exactly they're just they're behaving in a way that i feel like is totally uh 
reflective of how yeah. that would actually play out if it were to happen. So and, that is, incredible. and I think by the end, you're so much more fully in his like POV because he's pleading with Anna who's trying to keep him away with a knife now and is like stabbing him through the hand and shit. And he's trying oh. to, and he's trying to say, I haven't done anything to you. I'm just here to help you. Meanwhile, uh, he like kicked her through a table. <laughs> yes. And like, yes, he's just, he's just God. deflecting at this point. Um, and that converse confrontation rather is so harrowing too, because, um, she's in a somewhat defenseless position. She's fighting him off, but he's like manipulated his way into like a vulnerable space, um, where that murder is used as like leverage basically, which is fucked. Um, and I think obviously, um, the way all these things build, um, and the confrontations and the discussions that he's having internally and with these women figures, like both the mannequins that come to life and women literally, like obviously the ending is not very subtle about it. Uh, the women rip him apart. Like it literally tears him apart. Yeah, they sure do. And it's fucking great. Um, and also at one point he's got like a mannequin in the lower half and he looks like a Ken doll. Yeah. Um, we sort of went all all out on the ending there because the it really does stick the landing but i think it's a also i just want to make a point because the they have the doctor the cabinet of dr caligari drop in the middle and a i think that theater experience is another example of he's probably looking at it in a way that of how it wasn't actually going and because that that movie is both they talk about like the ending where like it's a different kind of ending where people live and don't get murdered and blah blah and that plays into it but also, like, I feel like German expressionism and the fact that we're getting his perspective and not anybody else's was a conscious choice, too. I feel like the filmmakers knew what they were doing. Yes. Yeah. I uh, this, this movie, it it honestly feels really perfectly constructed. Um, and it, 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 it does keep coming back to the POV for me, um, which is surprising because it's not something that sticks with me when i'm just reflecting on the experience of watching the movie but i think in terms of its formalism and what the movie is doing in our as we talk about it the pov just can't be ignored because it's so perfectly utilized so that scene you were just talking about at the end where he's um confronting anna or maybe anna is confronting him in the apartment yeah and you have her realizing that he is has been the one killing people around the city, or at least yeah, has he, been. He, the- he lets his guard drop for a minute and says, "The other murders like aren't your fault either." And she's like, "The what the fuck? Like what?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, which I think is brilliant, is you have him try to explain it. It's not a got you moment that she says. She she has a face where she realizes that he's said something that doesn't make sense. But yeah. in an, in another horror movie, you would have the the victim character say, "How did you know X? How did you know other people were killed?" But in this, we're in his head, and so he's our protagonist. He has to be um, one step ahead, and so he starts to scramble, and he says, "This is how I knew that the other people were dead," without her asking, because he's seeing her from his POV, and like, he's seeing together. her face and how terrified she looks, you know. Yeah, and he's trying um, to make this like a moment where he can be comforting again and like get what he wants out of it, like setting up this relationship. And she's just like, nope. And then um, good neighbor Martin tries to help and he gets meat cleavered through the mouth. Oh, 
Yeah, what uh, an amazing, like amazing is, like, sequence. If you can't picture what I just said, picture somebody's mouth open. Then picture a horizontal meat cleaver just sort of making their jaw bigger. <laughs> and he lives, which sucks. Oh, yeah. Because he gets back and up and starts taking like swings with the bat because he's committed. Because <laughs> he's a good friend. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just that whole sequence in the apartment just like fires on all cylinders because you have the climax of the emotional relationship where a lot of the terror just comes from Anna and Frank talking and coming to these realizations and the POV is used so strongly there because we're watching Anna realize that he is the killer and just Frank standing in front of her and looking at her is so terrifying because in the frame, she's just seems so boxed in. You know that if she moves the camera, that is Frank's eyes is just going to move with her and yeah. grab her. And so it feels so much more confining than it would be if we weren't in the POV and we just saw her standing across from him because then it seems a lot easier for her to dart in one direction or the other and get away from well, him. Well, and you know? then it's so drawn out because there's a whole chase after this, right? Like there's a whole mm-hmm. chase. There's um there's a car accident. Frank gets hit by a car. That car crashes into a wall because she tried to commandeer it to get away and she gets like shot through the windshield. He puts her in the van and then she is alive in the back of the van and tries to get away again and like stabs him again with um, a literal mannequin hand, which I guess is a callback to that time he asked her for a hand. I don't know if I'm reading a little far into that, but I mean, she literally knocked a bunch of hands off the wall and then manages to kill him by giving him a hand, which I think is fun. Um... Yeah, it's and then it just sort of culminates in uh we imagine like his death and or suicide however it turns out but uh the way he envisions it is it's literally these pe- these women like eating him alive. Yes, yeah, everyone that he has killed yeah, in the movie. Yeah. Like he's getting this come up in um which which is great because it is um another horror trope that is sort of turned on its head at this you see all the people who have died throughout the movie and they're put up on display in their lifeless forms. You know, you yeah. see it at the end of like Black Christmas 2006 is the most recent time we saw it. Yeah. And so so we get that. But in this case, they have far more agency than him and they are they're actively proving a point. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's 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 amazing. Yeah. And then I think the the middle sequence that we've sort of glossed over, it's not for lack of interest, but it just builds these things like with um dates or like hangouts between the two of them and then seeing frank when he's alone and when he gets like that impulse where he's like he's got to go out and then suddenly he's like inside a locker and like a ballet dance kind of studio thing it is like stalking somebody and you're just like man you're really like getting in it here that's actually one of my favorite sequences is when they're in that train station and it's empty and it's got this like mall wave pink and blue lighting and there's nobody there and at one point she just yells where the fuck is everybody yes (laughs) like they're drawing attention to how it's like cinematically too perfect to have no people in here like it doesn't make any sense this is los angeles at like nine at night like where the fuck is everybody yeah and it's and it's incredible that um (laughs) the fact that we're in his head the entire time makes it so much scarier which is kind of it's it it's an interesting um 
turning on the head of the horror genre because for decades now we've learned that it's scarier to not know where the killer is that we don't know where michael myers is hiding and he could come from anywhere and so what's terrifying is that we're with the victim and the killer could be anywhere whereas in this case we know exactly where the killer is in this train sequence he's standing just across from a gap and she's quite a distance away from him and there's no one on either side in this really wide room and so yeah. ideally like it would be easy for her to get away but when you think about he's just a person on the other side and if she runs he could just as well do the same thing it makes it way way scarier and then when they take it to the parking lot and Ugh. she has no way out and he's lurking on the other end of the parking lot again it's like that ankle okay, slash is so gross too yeah, we know there's distance between them, and so it should be safe for her, and we should feel comforted that right now he's nowhere near her, but we know exactly uh, what he's planning as we in the car, and so... It is. It's really just brilliant. You know, I've I've seen the Achilles cut in other horror movies, Cemetery, one of my favorites. And in that sequence, it's a surprise. We don't know that the killer is under the bed. And so to see it done in the opposite way where we just know it's coming and still see it be so effective is really just a, a testament to how brilliant the form movie, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, it feels lame to get to a point in a discussion about something you really like and all you really have is like, everything really just comes together but like man everything really just comes together here um like i said like a few things like the first date um feels a little eh. i think sometimes um when there were moments throughout the movie i can't pinpoint them now i think because we've been on such a high with this conversation where i felt like it had to sort of get me back into it but in hindsight thinking about it now like it really just sort of keeps you in it and fires and has interesting ideas that it's acting on um, to differentiate it really drastically from similar movies. Yeah, well, right before we started talking, uh, you to started talking on record. Um, <laughs> you said that you'd committed a crime, but we won't talk about that. And we all, you also said <laughs> that um, the scalping people, it doesn't quite make sense. Is that an issue for you in this movie? Like why he's scalping um, people? Does that detract? No, I can sort of like plausible deniability it's a movie my way out of that one because he's clearly like a very unwell dude um and the scalping ultimately leads to a purpose because it's to create these figures out of these mannequins i think initially it was just so jarring because it's like what the fuck like why is he like what purpose is he gaining out of the scalping i think it ultimately proves its usefulness because these figures that he creates that are these women sort of like get their revenge on him but it's definitely such a bold murder technique for your slasher oh, to have. Totally, totally. And so it's no wonder that they carried that over from the original. Um, it's it's such, in the original. Uh, is it just like a fetish thing, or like what is it? What's his deal there? Is there a fuller reason, or is it just because it's shocking? Well, there he also has the mother problem the original in in a Norman Bates sort of way. We don't get mm. all the flashbacks that give us more context i think this movie fleshes that out um a lot better but that is still the undercurrent there is that he's doing it because he was traumatized as a kid and the mannequins are in the original movie and so um i think it what it comes down to is that it's just a really sick man's uh 
the method that he has that he has come across in order to get a piece of a woman and put it on yeah. these figures that he's grown up around and besides that in terms of just like horror imagery it is just it's such a striking striking when image. he's talking the lucy mannequin through it getting put on and is like trying to say that like there's only a couple staples and it's not gonna hurt that bad like, yeah. Oh, one more. Like we're almost there. It's just like fuck, man. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's amazing. The the poster for the original Maniac. You should look this up. Oh yeah, because they recreated uh, in the in the reflection in the car. Yes, you yeah. noticed. Yeah. Oh yeah, this was um the first time that I can recall watching this movie that I noticed that that it was a callback to the mm-hmm. poster, and I just thought that was incredible because the movie does such a good job at being its own movie and having its own identity, and so I really respect that this movie seems to respect the original so much and just had this this cool nod to a, a really striking image from a cult classic film and it slipped it into a movie where you wouldn't even think of it twice um, as, as being out of place if you didn't weren't yeah. familiar with that poster that, because that poster, I saw it so many times and it I didn't notice. That poster is so violent that the poster itself got censored in Australia. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Um, I had seen the poster a lot, actually. And um, looking into this movie, I wound up seeing the poster again, like, right before I watched it. So I was like, oh, yep, that's what that is. Nice. Um, but it's a, really, awesome. it's a really clever way to draw attention to being a remake without screaming and shoving it down your throat or shoving it up your mouth. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I like that this movie feels so distinct from its predecessor in that way. I feel like the big thing that we get, like, let's talk about, like... Um, a Nightmare on Elm Street or something? Or what's the remake called? Is the remake just Nightmare on Elm Street? Is that how the title is different? It doesn't I, matter. I um, think it is an L. Or, or is it The Nightmare on Elm Street? There's something that differentiates it slightly. Anyway, not the point. Um, that movie's biggest problem is that it feels too much like it's trying to be the same thing again, but its solution is trying to take itself even more seriously. And this doesn't not take itself seriously, but it's aesthetic sensibility is so different but it doesn't stop feeling like the thing whereas other remakes like nightmare on elm street feel like they're trying so hard to feel like that thing that they no longer do yeah yeah that that is a great point and i think when a movie tries so hard to feel like what it's replicating and just put um some fresher aesthetics on it that's when you get the the problem where the original is going to stick with people far more regardless of generations because a lot of remakes when they're coming out they say that we wanted to update this for a new generation and and put the movie out so that kids today can see it uh that quote is all over the Nightmare on Elm Street remake yeah. Wikipedia page. We know that this is true, um, but there are so many kids our age and younger who still grew up with the original movie, and I don't think that's just because they are yeah. they thought they're supposed to be into it or they saw it first. I think it's because the original movie was made because they had an original, fresh approach in order to tell this story. We heard on the podcast when I finally saw it that it's like one of my favorite movies I've ever seen. (laughs) Yes. And I saw it after the remake as an adult. 
Like that's yeah, that's totally right. And so these things that stick with people, it doesn't matter if they're first or second or it just has like to be seven. good, man. It just it has to be good and it has to have its own identity. And so this movie absolutely has its own identity. And so I think it's that's what certainly why it's stuck with me over a lot of horror movies, either original or otherwise, that, that came yeah. out around is, the same time. This is easily the best horror remake we've done on the show i think easily yeah. i can't think of anything else that even comes close i think you have to look for sequels for things to get close i think exorcist 3 is worth comparing only because that's a movie that feels um stylistically unique while carrying a lot of things over from the original without just being the original again which is part of what makes exorcist 3 so good is that it's got stylistic flourish and it's got the dna there but it's not just, what if we made The Exorcist again? Yeah, um, you see it also with Dr. Sleep, yeah, very similar. Yeah, totally. And dare I say, Mitch, you see it with Black Christmas 2019, where it's very much its own thing, stylistically, just narratively, otherwise. Um, but it's yeah. good because it evokes the thing without just being it again. Yes, um, and... And 2006 does the same thing as well. Yeah. I think we went on a record on the 2019 podcast saying that like Black Christmas is low-key one of the best horror franchises. Yeah. But the installment does something different and and succeeds to some extent, you know? Black Christmas at this point is basically a single concept anthology series yeah. where it's different yeah. directors and different takes on generally the same thing. Um, and On the same title. Yeah. No, people could make a new black christmas like we could get a new one of those like once every decade and it would never like it would never get old and in much the same way i don't know call me in five years ten years and i'd be curious to see a different maniac just to see what you do with it how do you because mm -hmm. especially when you consider what the dna of the quote-unquote franchise looks like at this point um i don't know how you follow this up or try to evoke something stylistically unique without doing this again or if you do do pov again how you differentiate it yeah yeah i i would be so interested to know i'm i'm right there with you i think um it's the pov of all the women and it's all in vignettes and it's yeah dude it's their encounters with the man either we're going to have to co-direct this or this podcast will be a sort of sea change where mm. we're once again like we did with exorcist and carrie too we're gonna say hey this guys this movie is a classic everyone needs to know it we're leading and, the charge uh, here and eventually people will get there with us you know exorcist 3 a lot of people are loving that red now, letter so media yeah. is gonna make a video about this movie in like two months Oh, yes, yes. Get this out. Corey, you have to edit this tonight and get it out immediately. I don't <laughs> we have to get it out guys. before fucking Mike and JB beat us to it. Yeah, yeah. To clarify, everybody, there have been numerous times where we've done an episode and either as we've been set up to record it or right before we put it out or right after we've put it out. A review comes out. Has, has, also, has also done it as well. It's happened for, what, Exorcist 3 the boy to Brahms. Yeah, which we uh, didn't even get to, which was our own mistake. I'm actually going to pull up their channel just because I do want to know how many times this has happened because it's yeah. at least three. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, definitely. They definitely. did Willy Wonka today, so we can't do Charlie and the Chocolate Factory anymore without being late to the party. But why would we want to do that? I don't want to watch that movie. Fuck that. Um, Cabin Fever was one of them. Tron and Tron yes, Legacy, yes. they Tron did it. Yes. They, Exorcist 3... Did they do a video about Black Christmas at any point? I'm not 100% sure if they did. 
That's enough, though. It's enough to take yeah, him to. They, they to beat depart. us to Suspiria because we're gonna get there because I fucking love that movie and I want to talk about it. Um, but yeah, no, yeah, it was <laughs> the cabin fever was a big one, and um, fucking Tron was the other weird one. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. You, I forget that, that we people... did Tron. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they're they're movies that people could talk about at any Exorcist point. Three, they could have done at any point, but they did it like right after we talked about it. Yeah. Yeah, man, just keeps happening. They should have us on. That's the only way to solve this. Fuck that, man. We uh, we, we should have, should them, have on. them on. Yeah, call us. Um, yeah, I feel like that's maniac. I feel like we've covered it. Um, I think people should see it. That's pretty much my biggest thing to add is you should watch this movie. This movie should have like a big cult following in a way. It probably does right now, but not among people I know. So get on it, friends. Yeah, and honestly, dude, not among the people I know either. And I'm I'm a bit deeper in the uh, Twitter horror circles, and I don't hear about this one all that much. And yeah, so, we got to uh, proselytize. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's really fucking good, man. I would listen to that soundtrack uh, casually. That's how you know it's real. Yeah, yeah, that's um, a that's a great soundtrack. So you want you want to get out of here? You want to let people learn about Maniac? Give people some time to watch it yeah yeah cool let's let him let him get to maniac yeah well thanks everybody for listening again to another episode of they made another one you can find us all over the internet on twitter and letterboxd but hang on the twitter username is they made another and the letterboxd username is tmao messed up my own outro you can find episodes on anchor spotify apple and google podcasts stitcher breaker and everything else as they made another one you can reach us via email at tmaopodcast at gmail.com with recommendations for future episodes, questions, comments, and your favorite Lord of the Rings slash Hobbit slash Maniac movie. Our fantastic thumbnail art is done by Jade Dickinson, who you can find on Instagram at Jade Sketches. And Liam, where can people find you? You guys can find my film writing alter ego, Graham the Haunted Marshmallow, on Twitter and Letterboxd. My username is Graham the Mallow. And I am on Twitter and Letterboxd at Mr. Corey Price. And at some point, these things will all be updated. I promise. I say it every week and I'll, I'll mean it someday. Uh, once again, if you are unhappy with the state of the world, we encourage you to donate to causes you care about that help people that need it. Listen to those that are trying to tell you the way things are for real because it's easy to act like you don't know. And stay safe out there. Pandemic ain't over just because we said it was. Stay home. Watch Maniac. And um, with that out of the way, we'll catch you here next time for more. They made another one. Okay, the recording is still on. I'm going to record my reaction to this. And what if I just tack it on to the end? That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Okay, cool. So what do I want to type in that's not going to ruin it for me? I got you. I, I sent it in the Discord. Ooh. It's it's a full version of the scene so that you kind of get... Maniac, Tom Savini gets iced. Oh, if I record it, though, it's going to pick up the scene audio. Is that fair use? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's fair use. Fuck it. Hang on. Oh, it's five minutes? Oh, shit. I want to give you the full experience. Okay, maybe I won't keep this whole thing in, but um, if there's a cut here, listeners, it's because I cut to the good part. What are you expecting, Corey? How <laughs> are you expecting I have this no idea. <laughs> Especially because okay. you said it looks like what you thought that would look like if it happened. That made me really confused. Start the car. Okay, okay, okay. I'm, I'm glad I didn't tell you the method. I think this is a good way to go. Well, and I'm trying to figure out if the title means anything. He gets iced. Oh, fuck. He's just in the headlights. What's going to happen? 
You got the sound up good, Corey? What? What? I- whoa. Okay, okay. I have so many questions. <laughs> okay, okay, I'm just gonna- I'm gonna pause it now. Cause, okay, whatever. Um... <laughs> what happened, Corey? Uh, well, he- he runs through the fog, jumps up onto the hood of the car, takes like a tactical pose, and just shotguns Tom Zamini's head into goo. That's right. Um, why? So he can get to the woman, I guess. I guess. And his, like, head starts, like, flopping apart, like, into, like, bits. And, like, they're, like, hanging off weird. And it just, like, it just, it's just mist. It's, like, goop and mist. Oh, yeah. my God. And I like how the window doesn't fully shatter. Like, it's just, like, the bullets went through here and then Tom Zavini's head went away. Yeah. Wow, yeah. dude. And then she just gets, like, doused in blood. It looks like someone dumped a bucket of paint on her face. Yeah, and I, I read um, that they shot this in an hour because they didn't have permits to shoot in New York in all the locations they did, so they had to do this really quick. They fired a live round, and then right after, Tom Savini had to throw, get someone to throw the gun into a trunk of a car and drive away so that the cops didn't come. Yeah, so they had to, like discreetly have a getaway plan because otherwise they literally committed a crime <laughs> yes yeah holy shit so did they explain why they opted to use a real gun i think i think it's just because like the whole movie was low budget guerrilla style filmmaking yeah. and so that's just what they had but like did they so now i'm wondering did they shoot where the car actually is like on the side of a highway because that's fucking dangerous <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly. God damn, man. That's fucking nuts. Yeah. Man, what the hell? I love that, but also it's like, it's so reckless. Totally. Um, wow. Well, I'm glad we kept this in. Yeah. And now, uh, play Goodbye Horses to take everybody out. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Play Country dun, Roads. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Google Play Country Roads. <laughs> okay siri play tom savini gets iced <laughs> <laughs> okay we're done <laughs>